0: Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the You're front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Basillo and, Joe, and Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York metropolitan area. Let's jump right in. Uh, we have back on a friend of the show, Eric Sammons, editor of Crisis Magazine. And Eric has a new book out from Sophia Press. All of you out there know what I'm about to say. Don't buy it on Amazon. Buy it on Sophia Press, let's support our Catholic authors and publishers. Uh, who do you say I am unlocking the 24 titles given to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew? Now, most of you out there know Eric having said that. As I said, he is the editor-in-chief of Crisis Magazine. I highly, by the way, Joe and I highly encourage you to please subscribe to Crisis Magazine. We, all, we say all the time on the show that we have to educate ourselves, we have to equip ourselves, we have to have our consciousness raised. All of us, okay, and the work that Eric's doing there, uh, they're pumping out some great material for us to fight this battle that we're in, in, and we are in a battle. So please subscribe to Crisis Magazine. Um, Eric is also the author of eight books. He's contributed over 150 articles to numerous websites, not only Crisis, but also Catholic Answers, One Peter, Five, and The Federalist. He and his wife have seven children and live in. In the great state i will say of ohio eric sammons welcome back to the front line with joe and joe brother
1: hey man i love being on this show guys and we appreciate having you it's always a great time when you're here that's right that's right looking forward to this joe joe
2: before we say the prayer i always say uh, i had family from ohio canton like i believe it or not like the mother angelica italian mold my grandfather came from there there and they would always say ohio Ohio. (laughs) Ohio. And I used to. My
1: my dad was from Kentucky. And so when we moved to Cincinnati, he always, for his entire life, pronounced it Cincinnati. And, the, and I do not know why. And very few people did, but down south, I guess they pronounced it Cincinnati. And so he would be the one guy in Cincinnati who would pronounce it Cincinnati. And we always kind of gave him a hard time about it.
2: My, my grandfather, and I won't bore you, he uh, had a tattoo on his arm of a deck of cards. And under it, it said, The Ohio Kid so yes i have roots ohio roots so i Very love
1: good. It. yeah you sound you have an exact ohio accent let me tell you <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, oh you <laughs> caught
1: that right that's right
2: <laughs> so we'll begin with the prayer in the name of the father son holy spirit amen remember O most gracious virgin mary never wasn't known that anyone who sought your help or sought your intercession was left unaided inspired by this confidence we fly unto you a virgin of virgins our mother to you we come for you we stand sinful and sorrowful O mother of the word incarnate despise not of petitions but in your clemency hear and answer us amen in the name of the father son holy spirit amen eric well we're going to begin with the title of the book who do you say that i am now christ addressed that to his disciples and i personally that is a question we all have to ask ourselves maybe the most important question we'll ever answer talk about that uh why is that the most important question each and every person has to answer personally speaking
1: Right, right. It really is the most important question in the history of the world because the, the context of it is Jesus had been preaching, he had been performing miracles, uh, he had uh, 12 men who were following him closely, others that were following him less closely. And so there was talk, the talk was all about him. I mean, he was he was becoming an influencer, as we'd say in today's world, and so people were saying, well, "Who is this guy? What is he? Is he like one of the prophets? Is he Elijah come back? Is this John the Baptist raised from the dead? Who is this?" And so Jesus takes his twelve apostles separately, and he asks them, "Who are people saying I am?" He kind of wants to get the gauge. I mean, he knows what they're saying, but he wants to hear the apostles tell him what are people talking about. How are they? What wh- 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 are they saying he is? So they give him the answers people say, and I think at this point. The apostles are probably sitting there thinking, this is a very nice, comfortable conversation. We're just talking about what other people are saying about this. No big deal. And I feel like there's a pause. And then he just turns to them and he says, who do you say I am? And I think then there was an even longer pause after he asked that question, because now it's not a matter of saying, what do other people say about him? Well, who do you say I am? You're following me. You're my closest followers. Who do you say I am? Because... My guess is most of them started following him, thinking he's a good rabbi, a good prophet, something like that, uh, a great man. But over time, as they see more and more of who he is and what he can do, they realize, okay, everything, what we think he is, it's not fitting. Our categories aren't fitting. He's just acting differently than we expect. And so Jesus wants to call him on that and wants to push them and wants to say, okay, who do you say I am? And of course, as always, St. Peter is the one to to blurt out an answer first. But in this case, it's not just his impetuous nature, it's the Holy Spirit working through his impetuous nature to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And of course, this is the great confession of Peter, which leads to him being appointed as the rock on which the Church will be built, the first Pope, of course. But really, it is the question then that comes to every single person who encounters Jesus Christ, whether it's because you grew up a cradle Catholic, you grew up an atheist, and you later find find out about uh, Catholicism, whatever the case may be, you do have to answer that question. Because if you answer the question that he's just an interesting historical figure, that's one thing. But if you answer the question, he is the Lord of the universe, he is the second person of divine trinity, he is the God of all creation, then obviously how you react to that, how your life is going to change, is radically different. I think that's the key point, is that Who we say Socrates is, is an interesting intellectual discussion that we might have on a college campus, and we go off and nothing really changes in our life. But the discussion of who Jesus Christ is literally changes your life, because if you accept him and you believe that he is the Lord... And, and, and God of the universe, then you have to change because you now have to listen to him. He is your creator. You have to say, okay, how does he want me to live? Because that is really the second question after who do you say I am is now, how should I live based upon my answer to that question?
0: Right, right. Eric Sam is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Who do you say I am is Eric's new book, the subtitle Unlocking the 24 Titles Given to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, that's out from Sophia Press. Please buy it from the publisher um all right i mean there's so much that i'd love to get into in this conversation let me let me just throw a little because you mentioned atheists um and God bless all the Catholic apologists. I'm tired, by the way, of Protestant apologists. I don't want to see any Protestant apologists anymore arguing for the existence of God. I want to see more Trent horns out there, you know, right. getting getting out there and, and hammering the atheist. But one of the arguments that I think I see gets a little bit overlooked when an atheist says, well, why do you believe in what you do? I know that they a lot of Catholics rightfully put forth arguments for the existence of God, classical arguments and everything else. Why are we so fearful? It seems to me, maybe I'm wrong and you could correct me, to say, um well i believe it because jesus i believe jesus christ is who he said he is and i believe that because he was raised from the dead when richard dawkins sam harris Karl marx or anybody else nietzsche or anybody is raised from the dead i might believe them but i believe in god and i believe in jesus christ because he was raised from the dead why do we kind of shy away from that argument because we can we can back that up historically intellectually, and also we have faith in that, too. Why Why does it seem we always go to the classical arguments rather than say, I
1: believe in Jesus because of that? Um, do you, you know where I'm going with that? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think it has to do with the fact that the his, 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 uh, scholarship of history has gotten very much based on just a hermeneutic of suspicion, of skepticism, that basically we can't believe what we read about, That that every witness is biased and basically creating things. And you see this, it really started with Christianity, attacking the historical roots of Christianity, but you see it everywhere now. You see it, like, just think about how we've deconstructed every historical hero. We want to make them out to be, oh, they're not as great as we think we are. I was just reading a book. Uh, first real king of, of England and just an amazing man. And of course, Some scholars are trying to downplay that he really didn't do this. He really didn't do that. And it's just a matter of that's just who we are as a people. Our culture today does that. We try to take down contemporary heroes, but also any historical heroes. And so because of that, we're not serious about history, because if you like you you alluded to, if you look at the historical record, the only explanation that makes sense is that. A man died on a cross, was dead for three days, and then he physically rose from the dead. That's the only thing that makes sense of the evidence we have. And ultimately, I mean, obviously you you would dig into that with an atheist stuff like that, but nothing else makes sense. The idea that he, that maybe St. Paul invented this later or whatever the case may be makes no sense based upon what actually happened afterwards. And so I do think it's a very good argument. I think, though, you have to overcome the whole skepticism about all of history that we want to undermine all of history I mean you see this all the time where they talk about you can't trust the what the bible as a historical record particularly the new testament I'm like wait a minute these are accounts written 10 15 20 30 years after the events that is basically contemporary when we talk about it. and we and we have the the um the manuscripts from the copies of the manuscript from just a few years basically a few decades later you Mm -hmm. compare that for example homer's works or something like that or, or plato's or something like that we have overwhelming evidence i mean if any if you basically discount the historicity of the gospels then you basically have to throw out all of history and just act like the world started today which frankly that's what we're doing so i
0: was gonna say that seems to be that well that is part of this culture war that we're in is, as we know, because we're dealing with Marxists, the destruction of history. That's right. And and just retaining any history or or those things in history that that they want us to retain and then throw out everything else. But let's get back to your book. I'm glad, thank you, Eric, for answering that question because I think people should argue. Again, you know what I mean by argument, but we should yeah. put that forth more. Um, who do you say I am? Unlocking the 24 titles given to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. The author is Eric Sammons, who's joining us here today, and that's available at Sophia Press. Joe Rasinello.
2: Eric, um, I did not know, to be honest with you, that in the book of Matthew, there's 24 names to Jesus, to be honest with you. And Matthew's an interesting guy. Um, And if if you really look at, like, the group that Christ kind of brings together, I mean, Matthew's a hated figure. He's a tax collector. And it's a credit to, to the rest of the disciples, and I've thought about this, that they actually bring him in. You know, like, isn't one, I believe, and please both of you, correct me if I'm wrong, it's Simon the Zealot. Who's the Zealot, like, of the 12, I believe. Yes. Zealot, like, I don't know if people know this, is referring to a revolutionary like Barabbas. Like, he wanted to overthrow the Romans. So, Simon had to have hated Matthew because he was on the side of the Romans. Yet, they got along. First, let me say that. It's an amazing thing. Secondly, why does he have all these names for Jesus? Why do you think? I think that's also interesting. I didn't know that until I uh, looked into your book.
1: Yeah, I think honestly, what I think Matthew's trying to do is, first of all, it's kind of saying there is no one word, no human word that can encompass Jesus Christ. You can't call him—anything you call him is going to reflect some aspect of who he is, but it's not going to cover the totality of who he is. I mean, if you call me a man, that's basically who I am. I mean, there are other things even for a human person, like, for example, I'm a father, husband, things like that. But for Jesus, we could use an infinite number of words, and we still wouldn't cover every aspect of who he is. And so what I think Matthew's trying to do is he's trying to really—he's not just giving his—in fact, he's not giving his— titles for jesus what he's doing is saying what was everybody else calling him how did other people perceive him what were other things that now he gives some of them he he reflects on old testament and he he ties it into jesus but just like for the fact that he's called rabbi or he's called a prophet or called lord of the sabbath or, or the and some of the titles of course he gives to himself like lord of the sabbath and son of man but i think the idea is is that each one of them it allows us to say, okay, hold on a second, what does that mean about Jesus? It doesn't cover the totality of who he is, but it allows us to dig a little bit deeper. And so I think that's why he wants to have such a diversity of names and titles given to him in his gospel. So we see that he's painting this picture. It's got lots of colors in it. And so he wants to make sure we know, we get out as much of that as we can of who Jesus really is, because that's ultimately what he's trying to convey to his audience when he's writing is, who is Jesus Christ?
0: Eric, let me ask you this. We want to get into some of those titles. Okay. Um, I have one o- o- off you actually just mentioned it, all right, because Joe and I say on the show all the time at the front line with Joe and Joe, if you're just joining us on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, we're joined by Eric Salmons, is um we we learn, Joe and I learn as much from having these interviews with people like yourself, as much as our audience. So um, and when I ask questions, a lot of times it's because I wanna know. And I think that our audience wants to know. Talk about the son of man. That's one that always kind of got me. Like, like, like what is you will see the son of man coming on the clouds. It's like, all right, what's what's this? I know I get the son of God one. But I don't get the son of talk about that a little bit with uh for me and our audience.
1: What does the title son of man refer to? Yeah, son of man is definitely the most mysterious of all the titles given to Jesus, because it's, first of all, given to him by himself, and no one else gives it to him. And in fact, after Jesus' ascension, we don't use it anymore. Like, for example, when you... The creed, or just talking about him, we call him Jesus Christ. We call him Son of God, think the second person the tree, and stuff like that. But we do not call him Son of Man. That just dropped out of usage after Jesus, and I think it's a reflection of the fact that so mysteriously early Christians were like, we're going to leave this in the, in the lips of Jesus, and we're not going to repeat it really as a as a as a normal title we give to him commonly, and it refers to a number of things. First of all, obviously Son of Man, but most literally means that he's a man if you're the son of a man you're a man i'm a son of man you're a son of man because you're a man and so that that's that's the first thing we all have fathers but what's interesting of course is jesus doesn't have a human father and so how does that really work he's son of man and what it does it ties back into uh the book of daniel from the the old testament where daniel has these apocalyptic visions and he sees someone like a son of man at the right hand of God. And this was a messianic figure. This was somebody who was seen to be the the Messiah. And the Messiah was believed to be just, was going to be a man, but the son of man, the way it's used in the book of Daniel, it shows that he's somehow beyond just a regular person, which is kind of ironic considering the title makes it sound very normal, yet it's actually reflecting the opposite. It's reflecting that he's somehow beyond the rest of us. And so... I think also another reason that that Jesus uses this so first of all, Jesus is using this to reflect upon he is that messianic figure of Daniel. So look back at Daniel to understand a little bit better who I am. But I think also he's using that because he doesn't want to use the more outward— messianic titles because he knows people in his time misunderstand what the Messiah is going to be. They're expecting him to say, "Okay, let's get our arms, let's go to Rome. Let's march on Rome, let's overthrow the the, the Roman Empire." And he knows that's not of course his mission. And so if he used like if he used son of David too much or King of Israel, That's those are much more politically infused titles, and so they're much more likely to uh, cause people to misunderstand his mission, where Son of Man doesn't have those political implications. And so when he uses it, yes, it points to Messiah, but it points from a, a different type of Messiah than they were expecting.
0: Thanks for that, Eric. I really appreciate it. Joe Rasinello
2: eric i want to talk about the title uh the carpenter son because i i like that title because to be honest with you it 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 unveils it unveils the extraordinary in the ordinary and i think god the father did that specifically you know why did he choose fishermen normal people (laughs) to be honest with you i think people could relate to the carpenter son because most of us catholics speaking globally don't have phds i i emphasize that and i'll tell you i mean you and i and, and joe in the circles that we kind of talk in um i think sometimes people can easily forget that like the the average catholic in the pew doesn't even have a college education i mean that's the world i grew up in by the way my father was a barber came from newark new jersey so i mean why is that important because and this is where I kind of want you to like kind of address humility is, a tr- is a, it's attractive when someone is humble, like no one likes an arrogant person, even if you have all the answers, like people are attracted to humble people who have something to say. The carpenter's son says that. Talk about that because I think it's interesting. It's unique. Yeah, I heard somebody
1: once say, you know, it says in Scripture, God hates the proud. And he had even when they're right. <laughs> because it's like, because it's the, it's the pride, it's not the fact that they're, you know, right. The humble is what he's looking for. And Carpenter's Son is a beautiful title because it really does reflect that, god really did enter into the human condition he did not sit up in heaven and just say okay wave his magic wand whatever and say okay you people are saved now i'm going to look down upon you as little peon servants No, he said i'm going to enter into your condition everything about your condition i'm going to enter into and so i'm going to enter into a regular human family and a very humble human family his dad's a carpenter he's he has to use his hands to work and and to be honest that's the that's the uh, situation of the vast majority of people in human history the vast majority of people were actually a little bit odd in our time that so many people are what would be called white-collar workers or information workers they sit at a desk or something most people in human history to survive had to use their hands they had to work with their hands and so that's exactly what his foster father joseph did and so and he's and he's Identified with Joseph, like we know that Joseph wasn't his biological father, but as his adoptive father, he really was Joseph's son. And here's the thing: Jesus loved to be identified with Joseph. He didn't think of that like, "Well, I'm not even his biological kid. I'm I created him all that stuff." No, he loved that. He loved that attachment. He himself was a carpenter, and but what it did was, if you if you look at how when he's called this in the Gospel of Matthew. It, it is an, it is almost like an insult because of the idea of here he is going out preaching, saying these great things about God, deep reflections like, oh, my gosh, how could he know all this? He's just a carpenter's son. But that's a great lesson for us because the the one who understands God best is the one who prays the most. It's not the one with the PhD in theology. I agree it's not with the, you. Yeah, That's what really matters. That's what really is— the person who understands god most in fact the the, the church fathers had the saying that the, the theologian is one who prays and the one who prays is a theologian that's really the great theologians of our of of history are those who pray and so and that's why it you know it's not i'm not knocking on phds at the same time though the people we really want to look to as our models, almost none of them have PhDs. Saint Francis of Assisi did not have one. Saint uh, Teresa of Avila did not have one. But these people knew what it meant to follow and love Jesus Christ. And so I think Jesus is setting that model for all of us. Don't look down on those—the the plumber, or or the painter, or or you know the janitor, or something like that. They could be have a deep relationship with God that that far surpasses the the, the doctorate and theology guy.
0: No, absolutely. Eric Salmon is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe. Please go out and buy his book, Who Do You Say I Am? Unlocking the 24 titles given to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Here's a big one, Eric Rabbi, teacher. Talk about that. That's used an
1: awful lot. <laughs> yeah, Rabbi is interesting because. So in, in the time of Jesus, rabbi is simply a term of respect that is given to a teacher uh, in the Jewish world. And so you would call somebody rabbi, and what you're saying is you're acknowledging, because remember, they didn't have like a formal degree system back then. It wasn't like now where you call somebody doctor if they have a PhD. But if they don't have a PhD, you don't call them that. Back then, it was like if you basically considered somebody a good teacher uh, of, of the Jewish faith, then you would, you would call them rabbi. But in the Gospel of Matthew, rabbis only used from the lips of Judas for Jesus, to to, to call him Jesus. Now, that's not the case in the other Gospels, and I think there's a reason for that. I think because Matthew's writing to Jewish Christians, and he's writing to Jews who he's hoping to convert. And so basically what he's saying is, is that he's not just a rabbi. He's kind of giving rabbi almost a a little bit of a negative connotation by putting it in the the words of Judas. Like Judas only saw him as a rabbi, and look what happened. He did not understand his mission, went far beyond being a teacher. Yes, he is a teacher, but he's far beyond that. And I think that's what Matthew's trying to say is don't put him in that box, because as as a first-century Jew— you look at somebody going around teaching, and you're going to think, okay, here's another rabbi. Because they were a dime a dozen, too, frankly, at that time. And so it's like, don't put him in that box. Judas put him in that box and tragically misunderstood his mission. And so Matthew's saying to the people he's writing to, don't do that. He's, he's far beyond just a rabbi.
0: Thanks for that, Erica. Let me ask you a question just to kind of paint a little historical picture. Did the Jews learn— in a similar way to the Greeks, let's say, if you think about, let's say, Greek philosophy, you think about Socrates sitting around and they're having conversations and asking questions and exploring topics. Because did, 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 you said they obviously don't have formal degrees. Uh, was the learning similar? Was it simil- similarly structured in Jewish culture at that time?
1: Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that they definitely would have uh, – training and teaching that you would have students typically what would happen is somebody would just become a a rabbi and then he would get some students and it wasn't like a formal system it was just like people just like what happened to the disciples to Jesus they follow him around they listen to him they ask questions they find you know just like we were just talking about before Jesus asked him who do you say I am that is a somewhat typical way that they would converse and learn i say no though how, which is very similar to the greeks however i would say no in the sense that It was very much, much more structured around the, the sacred scriptures, i.e. The, what we would call the Old Testament. It was very much around, okay, what does the Old Testament, what does the, script, what the sacred scripture say, what does the law say, and how have previous rabbis, previous scribes and teachers, how have they interpreted it? Because you you weren't innovative. That was that would be considered something very negative. A rabbi wasn't there to think up, say, new things. He was there to say, uh, to repeat what he had been taught. And there's something good in that, of course, Catholics, we like that in in, in a sense of tradition. However, Jesus broke that mold because, of course, he—and that's why you see the reaction to him by so many of the scribes and Pharisees, is because he was breaking that and saying, I'm not going to say exactly just what's been said before, but I'm going to show how, in some ways, that's gone off the rails a little bit, and other ways, you just haven't understood it yet. I mean, the teaching on the Sabbath is a perfect example where they had got a pretty— Strict and 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 confined way of looking at how you celebrate the Sabbath, and Jesus was like, okay, you, you've gotten away gotten away from the original meaning of the Sabbath, so I need to teach you something different. That was that was pretty radical for his time.
0: Absolutely, uh, Eric Sammons is joining us to get the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe, we could probably start a question uh, before the break, and then uh, and then we'll pick it up on the other side.
2: Let's talk the title Emmanuel, because it it appears four times in the Bible, three times in the book of Isaiah, and once, just one time in the book of Matthew. Obviously, for those who probably know, Emmanuel means God is with us. Why would, would Matthew use that only one time? I'm interested.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, essentially what we're talking about here is at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, before he really gets into the story, he wants to paint a picture saying, this person I'm going to be writing about, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And so what you see is he has a number of ways he does that. He does that in the genealogy, at the, in the first chapter, but then he has a number of places where he says, this happened, thus to fulfill what the scriptures say. and. Calling him Emmanuel, which, of course, the funny thing is it says this, you're going to call him Emmanuel. He's not actually named that. He's named Jesus. But Emmanuel is who he is because Emmanuel means God with us. And so this is a hint right at the beginning to say this is god this isn't just uh another man this is god come down into heaven I and mean, of course he, he come down to earth i mean of course this is part of the virgin birth the, the miraculous birth that it's not just a virgin birth but this is god himself in the incarnation and so i think what he's trying to do at the beginning matthew is the beginning of the gospel is it's almost like uh in a good in a good book you, you kind of lay out what you're going to talk about at the beginning and then you go through and you detail your defense of that, and that's exactly what Matthew does. In the first couple of chapters, he's laying out this is who Jesus is, and then he, the rest of the uh, the gospel is okay. Now I'm going to prove to you through his actions, through his words, and of course through his death, life, life, death, and resurrection. This is he is who I claimed he is in the first couple of chapters, which is God come down in, to, to earth.
0: Eric Sam is joining us here. We're going to take a break real quick. Uh, remember to go out and buy the book, Who Do You Say I Am? It's available at Sophia Press. Eric, where can folks go to follow Crisis
1: Magazine? Yeah, just go to crisismagazine.com. That's crisismagazine.com. We got a couple articles up every single day.
0: I was going to say, in the time that we've been talking, which has been about 25 minutes, I've gotten three three email alerts from Crisis Magazine, I'm going to read every one of them. We recommend all of you out there do the same, not just because Eric's our friend, but because it's important for us to educate ourselves. So you're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, Joe Rosinello, Way in the Breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. And remember to download the app, the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app. You can have access to all of our station's content and share it with your friends. And I hey, if you like do what do Joe and I do, reaction. two primary places to find us the frontline tv on youtube which has uh, recently been doing very very well and exploding and also on twitter at with joe and joe at with joe and joe on twitter stick around we have another great segment with eric sammons we'll be right back
1: catholic radio works and now we have it here in connecticut and new york It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith, families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and his church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network.
0: The greatest revolutionary Welcome back everyone to the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe, Joe Racinello, Way in the Breach with Eric Sammons, editor in chief of Crisis Magazine and author of the new book, Who Do You Say I Am? Unlocking the 24 Titles Given to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Now Eric, I know I've been hammering on Sophia Press because I want to encourage our audience to buy it from Sophia Press, but uh practically speaking, where else can our audience buy the book?
1: Yeah, so definitely first and foremost, go to sofiainstitute.com, sofiainstitute.com, buy it there. You can also buy from my personal website, ericsammons.com. You can buy directly from me, ericsammons.com. And I would encourage you, if you have a Catholic bookstore in the area, they almost definitely get books from Sophia Institute, and you can ask them for it as well. And I'm with you. I would not buy it from, from the the big A. <laughs> the big A. Let's not make Jeff Bezos any more money, please. Right. He's got
0: enough. Joe Resinello, where do you want to go?
2: Eric, I was listening to you on the other side of the break talk about Emmanuel, God with us. And I want to talk about that a little bit more. And Joe, I'm interested in your comments as well, that you said, this is God. I mean, to, to really wrap your mind around that. I mean, you know, you mentioned that Judas, uh, also on the other side, basically said he's just a rabbi. I mean, people come and people go, and there's a lot of smart people out there, and they contribute to society. I get it. I get it. But to say that this is God, I always say in a very common way to people, I am Catholic and I listen to the church because a guy rose from the dead. And when you rise from the dead, I'll listen to you. That goes for anybody. And I'm being honest with you, Eric. That goes for people in the church and outside the church. When you rise from the dead, I'm from New Jersey. That's how I break it down. I'll listen to you. Until then, I'm listening to the guy who rose from the dead. Because he's God. Do we actually think about that enough as Catholics? Because if we did, everything he said, everything we would do, and the saints did that. Mother Teresa would say that, I take Jesus at his word. You see, that's the differentiator here. Do we take him at his word? Because he's God. Your thoughts? Yeah, I
1: think— and I think, honestly, it is what distinguishes the Christian faith from all the others, because other religions, they have maybe great men who founded it, but they're still in the grave, and they're still dead. Our founder is not dead. He's alive and will be for eternity. And so I think that's the key difference. And so, so the resurrection i mean, St. Paul says it. Without the resurrection, our whole faith is worthless. If you could prove to me for sure he didn't rise from the dead. I'm leaving the church the next minute. Of course, the problem is is that all the proof is that he is actually he did actually raise from the dead. And so he is God. And I think though that it shows our fallen nature. We do not want to fully trust in him because sometimes he says things and wants us to do things that we don't like that we don't want to follow. We'd much rather follow our own base instincts. We'd much rather follow our fallen nature because it feels good. And so ultimately, you see this, when people leave the church, and they leave the church, let's say they were really, I mean, people who actually were practicing faith and they leave the church, they almost always say, always give like an intellectual reason why they left. But I, I don't know if it was Chesterton or who it was who said basically, it's almost always a moral reason it's because they were cheating on their wife or doing whatever they were, they were embezzling funds from the, from the company, because ultimately that's the key. That's what connects it all is that if we just say, Jesus is Lord. Okay. That's important. That's the first step. But we have to act like Jesus is Lord. And he tells us you can't do things like embezzle money from the company. You can't do things like cheat on your wife. And so ultimately what we do then is the sin, you know, the saying is sin makes you stupid. And so the sin that you commit makes you stupid because what it's stupid to think that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. <laughs> And so I think what happens is is they they will then, and I've seen this a lot from people who left the church, came back, they'll even admit it. You 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 ask them why did you leave, and they give these intellectual reasons, but ultimately what you find is is oh they were living a lifestyle that wasn't conducive to Christianity. That's why a lot of uh, kids in college leave. You know, you hear it's because they heard this professor talk about this or that, and that's there's truth in that. That influences it, but it's because they're going to parties on the weekend it's because they're sleeping around they're they're doing drugs wherever the case may be that's the real reason that they they say all oh, Christianity's not really true
0: eric sammons I, let me say this um this obviously anecdotal okay i will tell you that in my 20 years apart from the Catholic church, okay, in my adult life, because I was living the life you just described. Um, Again, I'm only speaking for myself. I was honest honest enough to say, okay, by the grace of God, I was honest honest enough to say, I did not want to go back to start practicing my faith. I never left the church, but I did not want to start practicing my faith because I wanted to go out, smoke cigarettes, get drunk, and have sex. And the church was going to tell me, That's really not a good idea. Not only is it that not not a good idea, that's a sin and you could go to hell for Those are sins and you could go to hell for that. And that's the truth.
1: And here's the thing. God can work with somebody like that. Oh, yeah. Because there's an honesty to it. I remember in college, there was a, a, a friend of a friend and he was a Catholic and he would go to mass each Sunday but he was living a sinful life. And so he wouldn't go to communion. And I was a Protestant at the time. And I was like, What why are you not doing this? Well, I can't go to communion. I mean, I'm I'm like, you know, doing these things on Saturday night. I can't be going to communion. That, that'd be wrong. And there was something about that that just was so it it impressed me in a weird honest. way. Exactly. And I was like, okay, this is somebody God can work with because they're they're they know they're a sinner. They're not willing to change it yet, which is bad, yet. God will work with that person. The person who, if he had said something like, if he had gone to communion anyway, first of all, that's that shows a much deeper sin. Or if he had said, oh, I just don't believe anymore because of this. No, he still believed, you know, because it's intellectual reason, but really it's because he was living a moral life. That's somebody God can't work with. But the person who at least admits, yeah, I'm I'm a sinner and I don't want to give up my sin that person's being honest. And so I think those people are much more likely than to come back uh, into God's graces because of the fact that they're, they're being honest, even in their sin.
0: Right. Right. And, and well, obviously, you know, one has to look oneself in the mirror, no matter how you slice it. Like you said, you could come up with, with all these intellectual reasons why you believe this and don't believe that at the end of the day, people, all people should look at themselves in the mirror and ask themselves, why do I believe what I believe I've done it? You've done it. Joe's done it in an honest way. Um, You know, without anybody around, without trying to impress anybody, why do I believe what I believe? Um, And I think if people did that more, it would benefit them a lot. The book is Who Do You Say I Am? Unlocking the 24 Titles Given to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Eric Sammons, um, who Joe and I just, I can't say enough respect so much, particularly because of the work he does at Crisis Magazine. Please subscribe to that. Sophia Press is where you could buy the book or where you ought to buy the book in your local Catholic bookstore. Joe Resinello.
2: Eric, let's talk about the title Shepherd because this is important. You basically say in the book that there's two essential ways to preserve church unity that is communicated through this title, and God knows we need that now particularly. (laughs) Talk about that. I I think there's a lot to be said.
1: Oh, there's a lot to be said there, (laughs) yes. So, Shepherd. The Jesus is uh, refers to, in an apostle, like the, the, the Old Testament saying he will strike the shepherd and the sheep will, will flee. And he's talking about when Jesus is arrested, that look what happened. The, the apostles, they all fled. And so he's referring to that specifically. But then, of course, with his uh, uh, resurrection and ascension, he brings the sheep back together. And so he is the shepherd. And so there's really two ways in which we're united to the shepherd. The first way is through the Eucharist. The Eucharist is where we're directly united to him. He feeds us. I mean, it's like if we're sheep, The shepherd is feeding us, and this is how he feeds us is through the Eucharist, is a false unity. It's a human unity. It will fail. And if you look at the history of movements, of religions, they all end up failing, except the Catholic Church just keeps on going. Because the Catholic Church—and those of us who know Catholic history know it ain't pretty most of that time— yet it keeps going. Why? Because of that mystical union in the Eucharist. It's it's a holy union, and it's supernatural union. So that's the, that's the first way through the Eucharist. The second way, which is the one that's going to be very difficult for most of us to, to, to accept and to practice and do today, which is unity with our shepherds that God has given us, which is the bishops, that we are called to be united, particularly to your ordinary, which is your local bishop. So you live in, in, in New York City, for example, it's Cardinal Dolan. I live in Cincinnati, Ohio. It's Archbishop uh, Dennis Schnurr. That's your bishop. You're to be united to him. But let's all be honest. That isn't always easy. Just this week, we have one bishop essentially calling another bishop who's a cardinal a heretic. So we have Bishop Paprocki in Illinois calling Cardinal uh, McElroy of San Diego a heretic. And that, I mean, that's, that's strong language. And so what do we do then? What if you're under a bishop who is literally being called a heretic by another bishop? And that's the struggle of Catholicism, is that the Catholic Church is both human and divine. And so the shepherds, they they don't always tend to their sheep. And we see the, 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 the model, the bad model, so to speak, of this from the beginning. One of the shepherds that Jesus himself appointed— fell away in Judas. Another one, the one he made the leader, the pope, fell away briefly for a little bit and then came back, thank God. And so what we see here is that our unity with the shepherds is to be real it is to be something that we we listen to them as much as we can, but it's not to be a blind obedience in which we're just like, okay, whatever they say, even if it goes contrary to everything other, the other bishops are saying, contrary to what bishops said for 2,000 years, we're just going to follow it anyway. That's not how it works. And so like just like we wouldn't uh, follow Judas. And say, well, you know, Judas is one of the people Jesus appointed, and he he, he uh, rejected Jesus, so I guess we have to reject Jesus too. Of course not. And so I think that's the struggle we have. But I do think if we go too far on that, if we if we just dismiss our bishops as unimportant, as people we don't have to listen to, then we're Protestants then we're no longer Catholic. And so it's that balance. It's tough. And some ages, it's easier than others. I would argue that in today's age, it's a little bit more difficult, but we still have to have that unity with our bishop as far as we can, as far as, as possible.
0: Yeah, I, I I think that's right. I, I think, like you said, it's not easy at times. You know, Joe is, is very good at kind of pulling me back a little bit when I get a little bit angry and reminds me and our audience at the front line with Joe and Joe, you know, obedience you know, a lot of people can make an argument that that Padre Pio was unjustly treated. Okay, but he listened; he was obedient. And at the end of the day, he became a saint. You know, I, I mean, we 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 don't choose our bishops. There, you know, it's not a democratic election. And for whatever reason, through divine providence, that's our bishop. Okay, and within reason, we have to be obedient. Okay, obviously, we can't listen to a bishop who would do certain things like encourage us to sin. In any way, right. but at the end of the day, certain practices and disciplines and things like that, we have to listen to our bishop. Um, and eventually, I think Joe brought it out in a video the other day. If it's of God, it'll stick, and if it's not, yeah. it won't. It, 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 you know, and, and he brought up the you know the lesson of uh, Gamaliel, uh, which always rung true to me. If it's of God, it's going to remain. You know, that's and why it, we're Catholic because the Church yeah. is still go ahead, Eric.
1: Yeah, and I was going to say, I, and I think that concept of obedience is so important for Catholics, but I do think it's often misunderstood because we each have different uh, roles uh, in our, based on our state in life. So for example, a priest has a different level of obedience to his bishop than a lay person does. A monk obviously has a different level of obedience to his superior than than just a lay person would have to to somebody. But that doesn't, and so what we have to do is we have to really to understand what that is. So obviously, if a bishop uh, commands somebody to sin, doesn't have to listen to it. Uh, Or even if a bishop goes beyond their, uh, uh, what St. Thomas would say, their sphere of uh, of influence, what what their, a sphere of authority, I should say. In what they say. Like, for example, if a bishop said, Hey, you have to wear a striped shirt today to a lay person, the layperson doesn't have to wear a striped shirt that day because it's mm-hmm. outside the bishop's sphere of of authority. That's what St. Thomas says. But like you said, when it is within it, when it's not when it's not contrary to God or it's within the sphere of influence, yeah, we, we have to then obey. And that's a tough thing, particularly when we see when we frankly we lose respect for many of our shepherds because they're not really fighting the good fight as we see it. Uh, that, that's not an excuse to say, well, then I I don't have, I can be a complete free agent. The Catholics are never free agents. Absolutely. So go ahead, Joe. Uh,
2: <clears throat> I was going to say, I think you touched on something very important, Eric, about the, the Eucharist brings unity. And I would recommend to people um, to go to adoration because the Lord communicates to us in adoration in ways we don't, even realize and it brings unity it brings wisdom um and and to be truthful with you that is i think something that our church needs right now there's a time for silence too. notice some very holy people in the church cardinal sarah um also um joseph in hong kong my my, i can't think cardinal zen Cardinal's end. There comes a point sometimes, also Michael O'Brien in Canada, he used to be very outspoken. I know because I tried to get an interview with him. He doesn't do interviews. Like, And there comes a point where all you could do is pray. I think Cardinal Sarah got to that point. I think Michael O'Brien got to that point. <laughs> We find sometimes ourselves – and I got to this point. I'm not – I still have a big mouth. I'm not at the Michael B- Bryan stage. Yeah. You better have a big mouth. We have but, a radio but, show, but Joe. Banging <laughs> our heads against the wall. There comes a point where you're, you're – the only person that's hurting is your head, and then you have to pray before – the eucharist and through that comes unity through that comes wisdom through that comes peace there lies the unity of the church it's god's church he will fix it he will fix it i can't and i also think to something that you said too. people who leave the church and i'm i don't name names ever and i'm i don't do that But I think what happens, because I read this a while ago, people get frustrated because they think they're going to fix the church. And that's pride. And when they see they can't, they leave. You're not fixing the church.
0: I've seen a lot of examples on that, by the way, um, unfortunately, where I say to myself, that guy is, is leaving the church for that reason and, and it's like and nothing i saw in like joe's alluding to uh nothing i saw in anything they published on twitter or anywhere else in social media or in magazines like crisis or anything say like, that guy's leaving the church real for that like i think joe's right eric we love your comments on that
1: yeah i think a couple things i want to say is first is I, I have a friend recently tell me that when he looks at church history that he sees there's often Uh, all of salvation history, often there's Red Sea moments. What he meant by that was the people of Israel were at the shore of the Red Sea. They had the army coming after them and no way to get across the sea. They were stuck. There was no human way they could get out of it. But they had to come to that point. God wanted them to get to that point where they knew there was no alternative outside of his divine uh, action. And that's what happens then. Of course, he parts the Red Sea and he saves them, and throughout history we see there's red sea moments where we get to a point where we're like, this can't be fixed by us, and that's a good thing in one sense. It's it's a it's a mercy I should say, because what it's telling us is that you couldn't have fixed it in the first place. You thought you could. You he wants to get you to a point where he real where you realize where we realize we cannot fix this. We want to fight. I'm not saying we don't fight. We don't do what we can, but we're doing it through God's grace. But we it's going to get to a point where God alone can fix it. And then speaking back about adoration, I remember this was years ago, or our the parish I was in at the time, this is when I lived somewhere else, had twenty four a 24-hour adoration chapel as part of the parish, which is great. And I remember one time uh, they asked me to speak. We were going to do the uh, like the time, talent, treasure thing that you go up there and you talk about. And I was going to be talking about a time like volunteering. He wanted me to get up there and speak about how you w- people can volunteer and help out to perish. So I get up there and I say, okay, here's what I need everybody to do. I'm going to talk about, you know, they introduced me guys going to talk about volunteering. I said, what you need to do is I want you to sign up for one hour of adoration each week. And then you'll figure it out. Okay. And I just sat down. I was like, that's all you, that's your volunteering. Because if you do that, God will tell you if he wants you to do something at the parish. He will tell you if he wants you to volunteer in some, and I don't care who cares what I say, but God will tell you. And if God doesn't, if, because you're a state in life, you can volunteer to parish because you are a mother of, you know, five kids at home that you're taking care of. That's not, you shouldn't be uh, volunteering at the parish. You should be just going to your one hour of adoration that your husband makes sure you can get to. And that's, and that's, that's great. And so I really feel like that, that is what we need to do is prioritize, that life of prayer. I often say that you know you want to. We want apostles, not activists. Apostles are people who have an interior life. They're based their life on prayer. They pray every single day. Uh, activists are just people who think they have power. They they're going, going, going. They just want to do things. They want to fix things under their own power. And that's not what the church needs right now. It needs apostles, not activists.
0: Absolutely. Eric Sammons is joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Risonello. His book. Who do you say I am? Unlocking the 24 titles given to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Please go out and buy that at Sophia Press. Eric, let's talk about something really bad that I'm going to raise my hand and say in, in a in a in a former life I was very guilty of. And that was using the Lord's name in vain. We're talking about titles for Jesus. And and I didn't know how bad it was, to be honest with you. Okay. I know that uh I know that observant Jews will not use the name of God. Okay. And that's something we can learn from them. Okay. Because they have that much reverence for the name. Now we're talking about titles for Jesus. Okay. Um, talk about how really bad it is because it's all around us at work. It's like somebody stabbing me in my ear with, with, with a knife. I've actually had a conversation with somebody who said to me, well, you're Catholic. Does it bother you when people say, I can't, yes, yes, it does. I said I'm not usually I don't usually do that to other people say what you want that bothers me and and it's really horrible ways that they use our Lord's name in vain okay talk about on a very practical level how we as, we as Catholics really need to watch for that and not fall into using the Lord's name in
1: vain yeah it, the the name Jesus really is the most powerful word in 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 the human language because it is calling upon the name of our Savior. It's calling upon the name of the one who was willing to die for us. He loved us so much, he was willing to suffer and die for us, and he saved us from our sins. So it is the most powerful word in the human language. But when something is powerful, that means it can be used both for great good and for great evil. It's just like with the Eucharist. If you receive the Eucharist worthily, it gives you these great graces. But if you receive the Eucharist unworthily, as St. Paul says, it causes... uh, your sin to come upon you. It's it's far worse than if you hadn't received. And so, likewise, when you knew, when you use the name of Jesus properly, as a for example, you call to Him for help. I mean, that's one of the most powerful prayers. Is just if you're in, in need, just say Jesus, help me. I mean, that that's even just say Jesus.
2: I say that a lot, yeah. Eric. Jesus, yeah. help me. <laughs> yeah,
1: and, and 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 that is so powerful. It's the most powerful prayer in in one sense that we that we have. But when you knew, use his name in vain, when you use it as a as almost like a curse word, or, or that really it the power of it is reflected the opposite way, so to speak. It's kind of like it rebounds, it redounds back to you. And so it really is a great evil. Now the problem, of course, is we don't really recognize how evil it is. I mean, most movies have at least I was watching a movie recently, had no idea this was coming, and and somebody just basically just used the name of the Lord in vain. And I was just like, it's one of those things where it's like you, like. I, in my in my circles, we don't have a lot of people. I don't have a lot of people who who cuss, who like use the f bomb stuff like that. But when I do hear it, it's kind of like, okay, it's it's like it's not. I don't really like it, but it's also like it doesn't really. It's like whatever. Mm-hmm. But when they say Jesus in vain, that's the one that's like, oh my goodness. Now I do think we can do some things. Obviously, if you have a relationship with somebody, you can maybe talk to them at you know s- separately and and ask them, hey, you know, I, I think that's not a good idea to use that name. I think they'd be shocked. They don't even realize it because it's just a common thing, like that you would point that out, not like an F-bomb or something like that. Eric,
0: let me I mean, let me say helped. one thing along those lines. I, I had the courage one time, because I think it does take courage to point things out sometimes, okay? Because we don't want to come across as you know being too judgmental. I said that to uh, a guy who used to work with, because I'm in Arizona now, a guy used to work with in New York, who was Catholic, right? He was a Puerto Rican from the Bronx, who's Catholic, okay? Wore the chains and everything. And I said to him one time, I said, dude, listen, I'm saying to this as a brother, and I love you, okay? I said, it's really good that you don't, because he would say it really bad, like in a really bad way, throwing F-bombs in the middle, if you know oh, what yeah. I mean. Um, and he, he looked at me and he goes, you know what? You're right. Thanks for reminding me that. I really shouldn't do that. And yeah. after that, he, 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 at least he was aware. Right. You know, and I think it's, you know, it's important, you know, because like you said, it's just it's horrible. It's really horrible. When My problem more than anything. I mean, I, again, we're not going to get we. It's a conversation for another day is when. Uh, non-Catholics and non-Christians do that because they don't care. They right. care about whoever else is offended in this culture war. Don't, don't, don't use offensive language. Well, what the heck is that? If that's not offensive language, do you know I'm Roman Catholic? Of course you do. Yet you go ahead and do it anyway. Do you ever think in your mind maybe you're offending me? I got some thick skin. But there's but but there's there's certain things that I really have a hard time tolerating. So anyway, Eric I you know I just you know wanted to talk about that but we have time probably for one more question. Uh, we have a few minutes left. Joe Rasinello,
2: Let's talk about you you mentioned this too, Eric, and we could expand upon it and we'll circle back to the title Who do you say that I am? Clearly the best way that we could answer that is with our life. I mean ultimately that's how we're gonna answer that. Um, how we live. And that stems from prayer. I love what you said in that basic talk to your parish. When you do those things, the basics, I call we have to get one of the things I hammer home on so many different things. We have to get back to first principles as Catholics. You want to talk unity? Pray the rosary. If you could do it with your family. Frequent confession. Receive the Eucharist in a state of grace. Adoration. Fast read scripture every day. That's basic. Doesn't matter whether you go to Latin mass, English mass, we could all do that. And if we do that from it, something is going to grow, particularly our spiritual life and beauty. And and and, and, and we're going to answer that question in a way that we never realized. Talk about the importance of that because I think that comes from first principles, something we all share.
1: Absolutely. If you think about your top class athletes, they spend a lot of hours training, doing these specialized training with their coaches, things like that. But they have a foundation. They have good nutrition, they have good sleep. They do these basic things that they may they do stretching exercises. That's their foundation that they build upon and so they can become world class athletes. Well, if we want to be, world class disciples of Jesus Christ, we have to have that foundation because each one of us will be called in different ways. You might be somebody who wants to yap on the radio all the time. Maybe that's what God's calling you to do. Or run or run a you know online magazine or whatever the case may be. That's what specific callings from God. However, for every single one of us, we have that foundation. That foundation has to be prayer first and foremost. I I spiritual directors and, and saints have always said this and I, I think it's true. Every Catholic should pray at least one hour a day, no matter what. Fulton Sheen uh, recommended this, and when somebody said, I don't have time for that, he said, well, then you need to pray two hours a day. <laughs> and it's like, because it really is. Now, if you're only praying a few minutes a day now, then don't try to do two hour, an hour tomorrow build up to that. Build up over time to that hour a day. But I really believe that every Catholic should be praying an hour a day. That prayer can take different forms. It could be your, your party, be your rosary, your scriptural reading, uh, mental prayer, spiritual reading, whatever the case may be, but you you have different things that can make it up. And that you could talk to uh, somebody around you, a priest or something like that on how to best do that. But that hour a day. But then also you should have, the, the obviously, the sacramental practices. Uh, obviously going to Mass every Sunday, but even more frequently if you can but like you said, frequent confession—minimum once a month. Go to confession once a month, uh, at least. And and I think that's now you're building your base. Now you're getting that foundation that you can build off of. And then God might call you to some some more practices. Uh, like you you mentioned fasting—that's a that's one that's too neglected today. Uh, my wife has been helping a lot of people learn how to fast because. She really has seen that, how powerful it is. Physically, it's powerful, but also, more importantly, spiritually, it's powerful. And so I really believe that the the, the more we—fasting fa- is basically the prayer of the body. And so that's what we want to do that. So these practices that have been with us for 2000 years, that's our foundation. Then after that, you might be called to specific apostolate, specific things. Your apostolate might be uh, at home with your kids, which is the most important one. It might be as the CEO of a a major corporation that you're influencing, things like that. Mm -hmm. But without that foundation it frankly it's all worthless i mean i I don't want to listen to you and nobody should listen to you (laughs) if you're not no
0: absolutely eric i'm sorry we're up against the we're up against the end
1: of the segment we're quick real quick where can people buy the book the title and know more about what you have going on yeah go to sophia institute.com to buy the book who do you say i am and go to crisismagazine.com to check out what we're doing there
0: please everybody do just that eric sammons friend of the show, our brother. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Always a pleasure to have you on. Good luck with everything that you're doing. Um, And thank you all out there for joining us on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith in the New York City metropolitan area. Remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation, and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon.